0: Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Timothy. get can start in the book of Revelation in the back and work your way to the left. This is one of three pastoral letters written to young men named Timothy and Titus. 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's kind of last words written as a prisoner of Rome awaiting trial. And His final letter is written to a young man. He's not really young. He's probably in his mid-30s, but his name is Timothy. Paul describes him often as his son or child in the faith. Um, And he is entering a new season of ministry, and Paul is trying to prepare him for that. And the new season means that Paul is not going to be around, and he knows that. He's not going to be around to lead him, to guide him, to encourage him, to mentor him, as he has done for so many years. And so as such, it's a pretty special letter. And it is, in my view, contains some of the most important things that the Apostle Paul wanted to say to whom is probably one of the most important people in his life, likely his best friend or one of them. And he is writing to his best friend who is pastoring probably the most important church he ever planted, namely Ephesus. And so this is a timely sermon series for our church as we On the eve of a very similar sermon, I'm not about to be martyred, praise God, but I am transitioning and won't be as around as I've been in the same role. Our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And if you recall, if not, I'm going to remind you, the very beginning of chapter 3, it began with a a sober warning from the apostle about how people were going to change during a time that he called the last days. The last days. Now, in the Bible, the last day, singular, uh, describes a point that is really a future culmination of God's redemptive plan that includes judgment and the return of Christ. And that's a day that's going to happen. But the last days, plural, describes a longer period of time that I would argue we are now... Living in these, uh, the day, if you will, that where all ends, no one really knows when that is going to come. Though everyone knows it's going to come, the last days, if you will, started when Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, and have continued until His return. So we're living in these last days, and he Paul warns us that in these last days there is going to exist two different kinds of people that really represent two different kinds of lives or living in this world. And according to Paul, the differences between these two kinds of people might best be characterized as those who have two different kinds of loves. And this is the kind of language he uses in chapter 3 to describe it. If you read back, he says, there are those who are lovers of self versus those who are lovers of others. Those who are lovers of money versus lovers of charity. Those who are lovers of power versus lovers of service. Those who are lovers of evil versus lovers of good. Lovers of pleasure versus lovers of God. Now Paul's not merely describing the mentality of the non-believing people in the world. In fact, as he writes to Timothy, he's primarily ty- trying to differentiate between kinds of teachers, or even Christians in the church. He goes further to say that these false teachers or false converts are going to come into the church, and despite calling themselves Christians, they are the ones who are led astray by all kinds of passions, he writes. These false teachers are perpetual skeptics. They are always questioning Everything and never really settling on anything. They are, in his own words, corrupted in mind, and these Christians oppose the truth. Despite what he says, their appearance of godliness, they are in fact disqualified regarding the faith. Now, it's true that many of these people that he describes will have and do have, even in our last days, positions of influence. They have followers, they have fans, they have a set of truths that they proclaim, they have a way of living that they prescribe, and they have goals for life that they promote. But as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, some of the most sobering words in Scripture, that on that last day, that the last days lead up to, many people would sincerely believe because of the many works that they have done in the name of Jesus that they are Christians when in fact, Jesus says, they're not. They look, they sound spiritual, but before Jesus, they stand condemned and Jesus describes them as men of lawlessness. Paul describes these same people as evil imposters. So imposters means they look like the genuine article, but they're not. They're imposters, he says, that are actually there to deceive, and who, in fact, are often deceived themselves. These are the kinds of people, he says, that will be in the last days, in the church. And we know that anyone, and many ones, can call themselves a Christian, that many Can say, I really like Jesus. I think he was a great teacher, good guy. But when Jesus said, Follow me, he meant more than just believe that he is good. He meant more than just, you know, behave a certain way that is good. Jesus' command to follow him is not merely an invitation to label yourself a Christian or to perform so-called Christian duties. As James K. Smith writes in his book, you are what you love. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. That's what Jesus meant by follow me. We must do more than just simply declare, oh, I love God or I like Jesus. We must endeavor to live as if we love what he loves. Now, how can you learn what God loves? How can you know what God loves? How can you align yourself and your loves with his? Which leads us to our passage this morning, 2 Timothy 3. Verses 14 to 16. Verse 14 begins this way. But as for you, writing to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word, and it begins with Paul writing a simple phrase, but as for you, but as for you, Timothy, and in writing that phrase, he is obviously highlighting the difference between Timothy and these other believers or these other teachers that are in the church and think that they are Christians. In this text, he identifies the distinctive difference between these two kinds of people, these two ways of living, these two ways of even hoping and getting through these last days. Namely, the key difference Between these two kinds of people rests in this. One's disposition toward what he describes as the sacred writings. One's disposition towards the scriptures. One's disposition towards the word of God. And this difference between these two kinds of people shouldn't surprise us because from the very beginning, the rejection of God's word was how the world fell into sin. The exchange of truth for a lie was in the beginning with our first parents. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, gives us the situation, the story of this moment. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say I imagine that many of you have heard this passage before, read this passage before. I want you to consider in the very beginning before the fall, but obviously as a catalyst for it, there were two counselors in the garden. That there were two voices teaching. One speaking words of life and one speaking words of death. And from the very beginning... And since that time, mankind has struggled to listen to the right voice and resist the wrong ones, for there are many. The world, the enemy, our flesh challenge the truthfulness of God's word by ultimately beginning with an attack on the goodness of God's character. That's where it starts. Christian teacher and writer Dallas Willard said it, I think, very well. He said, never believe anything bad about God. Never believe anything bad about God. And here's why, I think. See, the moment you believe something bad about God is the moment something other than God becomes the supreme authority in your life, putting you in a position to judge the goodness and the grace and the character of God. And when you start to reject and doubt the goodness of God, it is only a matter of time and that a very short time before you reject the goodness of what God says. Now, surprisingly, and it might not surprise you, but in a 2018 to 19, and they do these just about every year, either Gallup or Barna, there was a survey done. And in this survey, 65% might have been a little bit more of adults in the United States identify themselves as Christians. So for you math wizards, that's a majority of the United States. So, majority of Americans self-described in this pretty extensive survey as Christians, 65%. And in a survey done that same year, another percentage came up. It revealed that only 24% of American Christians believe the Bible was the actual literal word of God. So, 65, 24. One scholar noted that evangelicals have traditionally emphasized the importance of seeing the Bible as the infallible, inerrant word of God. But now, however, in this same survey, upwards of 50% said they do not believe an objective moral truth, which means... He argued that most evangelicals believe the Bible is not inerrant or trustworthy in its contents. So what this reveals is simply this. Once identified as people of the book, many so-called Christians now believe you no longer have to read or believe the Bible to be a follower of Christ which is the primary source to tell us who Christ is. Now, Jesus seemed to indicate that the word of God was actually essential to the Christian life. So, in his prayer in John 17, which you've not read before, you should read it. It's a, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus In John 17, verses 14 to 19, this is what Jesus said, praying for his disciples and the future disciples, which would include us. He said this, I have given them, his disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So, this is Jesus saying the word of God is kind of essential to being a disciple, essential to following Him. He seems to distinguish, in fact, his disciples from the world based on their acceptance and allegiance to the Word of God. He even seems to imply that their commitment to the Word, their willingness to hold fast to the Word, is a cause for the world's antagonism toward him. Moreover, he prays that God the Father will not just keep them in their little Christian huddle away from the world, that in fact he will send them into this hostile world and that the Father will sanctify them in his truth as he does, that he will set them apart, that he will protect and guard them and even change them in the world by his word. So it follows for Timothy. Timothy who is going to be by himself and still in this world in the midst of the chaos of the last days, full of spiritual sounding, crowd gathering, godliness appearing, false teachers who neither read nor teach the Bible. He says, what is going to protect you, Timothy? Hold on to what you've learned. Hold on to what you've believed since you were a little kid. Stand firm. Hold fast to the sacred writings. Hold fast to the Bible. Because fewer and fewer people will. Isn't that what we're seeing in our world today? It's becoming less and less or maybe more and more common You see Christians who don't actually read, believe, or teach the Bible. In fact, I've observed that most of the revolutions and protests in the world and most of even the divisions in the church seem to be repeats of Genesis chapter 3. Men are more interested in what they want than what God says. The question, did God really say, is so frequent now, but I believe it's rarely asked with curiosity and most often with agenda. In these last days, it seems that the word of God is not viewed as something that protects us from foolishly wandering off into places that are dark and dangerous, but instead something that restricts us from truly living who we are. This couldn't be any more different than how Paul views the scriptures. He describes them as the very wisdom of God. Foolish to men, but the very wisdom of God and the means through which men are saved from death to life. Now, Paul has what seems like a really strong confidence in this book. But why does he have so much confidence in this book? Well, as you read in verse 16, he says why. And one of the most famous passages in Second Timothy, if not the New Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, let's just talk earthly speaking, right, literary speaking. This is an amazing book, just in and of itself as a book. It is the Scriptures. The New Testament speaks of the Old Testament as Scripture, the Greek word for which means writing. The word Bible comes from the Greek word for book. But it's really not just a book. It's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It's amazing, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's written over a period of more than a 1,000 years by over 40 different authors on three different continents. Some of the authors include kings, there's peasants, poets, philosophers, fishermen, statesmen, scholars, and more. Books include history, there are sermons, there are letters, there are hymn books, there's a love song, there are geographical surveys in it, very exciting to read, building plans, travel diaries, population statistics, family trees, inventories, numerous legal documents. It covers hundreds of controversial subjects with amazing unity. It is the best-selling book of all time, and parts of it, or all of it, are available in over 3,000 languages. It's an amazing book. But it's more than a book. You see, Christians believe in a God who is personal. Our God is a speaking God who by His Spirit has graciously revealed Himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired, that's where the term breathed out comes from. Uh, He has breathed out every single one of the 800,000 plus words preserved in Scripture. He has spoken them. These 66 books are both the record and means of his saving work before the world was created, in the world as it's going, and even after the world ends. And because these words alone are God's very words, they are supremely authoritative, they are uniquely without error, and they are perfectly complete. And by that I mean... That what God has written is sufficient for all that God requires us to know, believe, and do. As our doctrinal statement just plainly says, the Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches. It is to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires. And it is to be trusted as God pledges in all that he promises. This is why Paul has such confidence in the Word. In other words, the, the Word is not just a collection of wisdom and insight from very godly, gifted men. The Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle about the Scriptures, of which he would later include Paul and his letters in that same description of Scripture. He said this, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, neither Peter nor I are talking about the authority of one's interpretation of the words. We can debate that. We can even disagree about that. We're not talking about the authority of one's interpretation of the words. We're talking about the very nature of the words themselves. More than letters on a page, the scriptures are active and living and heart piercing and authoritative. And by the Spirit, they confound our intellect, they stir our emotions. They confront our experiences and they direct our decision making. The scriptures equip us to discern good from evil. They guide us on paths of prosperity and they protect us from idolizing creation. Jesus quite plainly says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does The will of my Father in heaven. The will of the Father, the loves of the Father, the desires of the Father, the expectations of the Father are not a mystery. They are revealed in Scripture. Now if the Bible merely contains the words of men, then we just read the words. And we take the ones we like, and we throw out the ones we don't. We grab one of the ones that work with our life and meet our desires, and we reject the ones that don't. If they're just the words of men, we just read the words. But if they are the very words of God, then the Word reads us. See, in contrast to the false teachers, Timothy is told to. You know, root all of his teaching, all of his conduct, all of his purpose in life, all of his faith in the Word of God. He writes that all Scripture is profitable. Yes, even the boring parts. And there's a few of those, and there's a few scary parts, and there's some wonderful, beautiful parts. And there's some really confusing parts. He says all scripture is profitable. In Romans, he speaks about this idea generally, about what has been written in the scriptures. And he said in Romans 15:4, for whatever's written in former days, it was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. But here in 2 Timothy, he gets a little more specific, a little more pragmatic even. He says that they are profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. All scripture, all profitable for every good work. So as we ask ourselves questions, well, what should we be teaching in churches, in our homes? Simply, what God says. Well, how shall I behave? How shall I know what to do? Well, you should obey how God says. Well, what and how and when should I rebuke? Well, what and how and when. God says you should. What should I believe what God says you should believe? What shall I train in and devote myself to and sacrifice for what God says you should? What about bigger questions like, who am I and why am I here? You are who God says you are and you're here according to what God says you're supposed to do. It's almost too simple. Those aren't the first questions we typically ask. See, you must be careful about the first, not the only question. The first questions you ask. Because the first questions should not be, well, what do I desire? I'm not saying you should never ask that question. It just shouldn't be the first. What do I desire? Well, what is what's popular? What feels right to me? What feels true to me? What's easy for me? What makes sense to me? These are not the first questions that we should ask. The first question we should ask, it is what does God say? What does God say even if isn't what I desire? What does God say even if it isn't popular or if it doesn't really feel great or easy or even sensible? The first question is, what does God say? See, Paul assures Timothy that by living a life in submission to the Scriptures in accordance with the will of God, he's going to be made complete. And isn't that everyone's goal? He's going to be complete and he's going to be equipped for every good work. And so in the light of like the difficult task he has before him, he's going to be by himself. He's pastoring a church, but he's living in these last days. He simply, look, Timothy, out of all the things you could have to help you get through this, to help you do all you need to do, you are going to need the Bible. You're going to need the scriptures to accomplish everything you have to do does the Word of God have that kind of place in your life? Like, can you think of all the things that you need to do in your life, all the goals you have, all the responsibilities you have, if I were to ask you, like, well, what do you need? What do you most need to ensure that you can do what you need to do, what is right, what is good? Like, I think we would give a lot of things as a response. I need certain amount of money, I need certain opportunities, I need certain positions, I need certain things to go my way, how many of us would first and foremost think, I just need the word, I need to know God's heart, I need to know God's desires, I need to be led by God. You know, this is especially important for teachers, because you're like, oh, there's a pastoral epistle, I'm not going to be a pastor, moving on. Slow down there, Turbo. Let me help you. It is especially important for pastors, without doubt, and teachers. But it's actually especially important, or also important, for Christians. Because Christians have the responsibility to test what is being taught. This is Paul's experience in Acts chapter 17. He meets these people called the Bereans. He goes and he's preaching. And it says, they received the word with eagerness. They loved hearing his preach, yes. And then it says, and then they went and examined the scriptures daily to see if it was true. You ought to do that. With all teaching. Including anyone who preaches from this pulpit. Because 1 John 4.1 tells us, test the spirits implying that there's a lot of spirits saying a lot of things, a lot of voices in a lot of places, and some sound really spiritual and Christian. He says, test them to see whether they are true and whether they're really from God. And you go like, okay, I will do that. What's the test? Excellent question. Is it going to be your emotion? Oh, that feels. Is it going to be your intellect? That makes sense. Is it going to be your experience? Not to suggest that those things don't have influence, But is that the test? I would argue this is the test. That the word of God is the test. And that he is the one that tests the spirits that say all kinds of things. Especially the ones that say, did God really say that? Well, let's find out. And let's open his word. Now, many Christians are going to be and are today led astray quite simply. Because they don't read their Bibles. You listen to authoritative guys behind pulpits or in podcasts, and you're like, oh, it must be true. Authors, oh, that must be true. Because it feels good, it has tickles and tingles, you just drink it up. We need to test by the word that we are not led astray by spiritual sounding things. Let me give you an example as we close. Back in 2005, there was a local young man named Ryan Meeks who launched a church that you may have heard of called Eastlake. And he was a good communicator, had some awesome TED Talks on Sunday morning. And he engaged his audience uh, very whimsically with all kinds of philosophy and even bringing in sacred texts from other religions, and then occasionally a Bible verse. And it shouldn't surprise us in the spiritual Northwest that it became very popular church grew very quickly and soon became a megachurch with multiple, I think, upwards of eight campuses. And at the peak of success, struggling with the pressures of leading something so large, Pastor Ryan decided, I think it's time to seriously read the Bible. And so he read it twice, all the way through, he states, in that year for the first time. And shockingly, he would say, this is the first time he really studied the Bible, really read the whole Bible, Pastor Ryan. After reading it, he decided that he didn't really believe most of it, which led to his full rejection of it, including the historicity of Jesus himself, yet he continued to preach and to pastor But predictably, within months of rejecting biblical truth and being quite public about it, and then embracing what was very worldly wisdom, the church imploded, and he made a complete shipwreck of his faith and many who followed him. Today, he no longer claims to be a Christian, though he kind of likes some of Jesus' teachings, kind of like Oprah. But now he describes himself as this some sort of Buddhist psychedelic therapist who lives by this mantra. Life is a gift and love is the point. Life is a gift and love is a point. Now, there are many Christians who go, yeah, that's great. Life is a gift and love is the point. I happened upon a recent interview with him and he affirmed this same mantra and this is what he said. Love is what changes people. Love doesn't care about the rules. Love is self-giving. Love is an infinite resource. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. To which many Christians and very spiritual people would hear and go, ah, love is great. It is the most powerful thing in the universe. The problem with his words in this perspective is that I have no idea what he means by love. And definitions really matter. But it sounds spiritual. See, unfortunately, without divine and absolute authority, something else, be it your emotion, be your intellect, be your experience, is going to give you definitions for those words. And truly, without a divine and absolute authority, they can mean nothing or anything. And the same goes for words like truth and justice and faith and friendship and leadership and peace and hope and even salvation. The Word of God, most clearly revealed in the person and work and teaching of the Son of God, Jesus, as recorded in the Bible, presents us with very tangible meanings for all of those words. And honestly, not a single one of them makes any sense apart from Him. And that is what I mean by the Word of God being central to your See, the word of God is not just some old, lifeless map. It is a living guide on which life and death depends. According to Paul, there are actually only two kinds of living in the world, two kinds of loving, if you will, in the world. And there are many voices speaking many words, but there is only one truth and one word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he connected our survival with what God says. He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if this is true, there really is only one way to live if you truly want I'll close with the first Psalm, Psalm one. And it describes these two ways so clearly. It's taken from the CSB what I'm reading. Oh no, he changed it. Good job, Joel. You're rad. The ESV says blessed, which is a great word, kind of an old word. This is what the word means. How happy. I mean, is that, when you think about this, do you really believe that God is for your happiness? Like, if you think he's a cosmic killjoy that's just trying to hold out on you and make you feel like, you know, I just want you to follow these rules so your life sucks. Like, if you really think that, like, you don't understand what the word of God is. He's a father who loves you. Who wants your best. How happy. Is the man or the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked by other voices or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, where is his delight? This happy one in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. And he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season. whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Who is this? The person that doesn't listen to the voices that God really say, actually listens to what God says and delights in it and thinks about it and meditates on it. In verse four, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like shaft that the wind blows away. No root. So when things get hard, life crumbles. Therefore, the wicked are not going to stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. There's only two ways to live. Two ways to walk. Two ways to hope. Two ways to get through this chaotic thing called life. And there's lots of things that as a pastor transitioning out, they're like, oh, what was this church about? What was this pastor about? Here's what my prayer would be. That at least one of those things, and probably the most important thing is that they're about the word. What the Bible says, about God's desires, even if they confounded our emotions and our intellect and our experiences, were about living according to the word of God because we believe it's the path to joy life beyond death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And by that I mean you didn't leave your will a mystery. There is much that we will never fully understand about you until perhaps we are with you face to face. But you have revealed everything we need to know now to live this life to live it with joy, to endure, and to walk the path of wisdom that leads to joy. I pray, Lord, that the word of God will become important to all of us, more important than it is now. That as Psalm 19 says, Lord, it will be like honey. It will be a delight to us. It will be a desire of our heart to know what you say, to trust what you say, and to live what you say. We confess, Lord, there are lots of voices that we listen to in this life. There are lots of voices that we're exposed to in this life. Lord, guard us, sanctify us, protect us, not by our own wisdom, but by yours. I pray you will submit our emotion and our intellect and our experience to your word, and they will not just merely learn to trust in it, but learn to delight in it.